right, welcome to Black Box by the Algorithmic Governance Research Network with me, Teresa Esbekuldova. Joining me today is Albert Foxconn, the founder and executive director of the Surveillance Technology Oversight Project, or STOP, to discuss the work of this nonprofit advocacy organization and legal service provider based in New York. Welcome to the show, Albert. Thank you so much for having me. <laughs> The Surveillance Oversight Technology Oversight Project began in 2019, if I'm correct. And since then, you have managed to litigate several cases and class actions and worked actively to abolish local government systems of excessive mass surveillance and fought for laws that protect privacy, oversight and civil rights. You have also brought to the fore the harms and discriminatory practices connected to the use of technologies such as facial recognition, biometric surveillance, geolocation, automated decision making systems and many more used by law enforcement agencies and governmental bodies, while often delivered by private intelligence and tech suppliers. In your launch plan, uh, you remarked that recent anti-surveillance mobilizations largely targeted federal agencies, ignoring the alarming growth in local and state surveillance. And that, to quote the plan, the NYPD or the New York Police Department purchases the same high-tech surveillance tools deployed by the federal government while refusing to promulgate the same internal privacy and use policies required for federal agencies. In New York City, these systems provide information to federal agencies endangering immigrant New Yorkers and violating local officials' promise that we will be a sanctuary city. STOP aims to transform New York State into a model of surveillance oversight for the rest of the country, leading the way on these crucial state-level issues. Before we dig deeper into these topics, I was wondering whether you could tell us more about what motivated you to establish this nonprofit and why all of us should be paying attention to the work you do. Oh, thank you for the kind introduction. I mean, in short term, the reason why I started the nonprofit is I'm a giant nerd. You know, I grew up playing with computers and protesting the NYPD. And I saw this, you know, convergence around the technology and law enforcement as a, you know, something that was keeping me up at night. And after I became a lawyer and a civil rights lawyer, that fear only grew. And I saw how the technology was amplifying all of the dangers we knew with policing all the biases, all the forms of violence and making it even worse and that there wasn't really the sort of opposition at least not in new york that we needed to you know push back at the scale of the threat and so that's what motivated me to to found stop you know really an organization with the goal of, of abolishing mass surveillance here in new york providing models and research and toolkits and strategies and support for groups around the country and around the world that are doing the same and really um feel incredibly grateful that it's in such a short period of time we've been able to grow our work so quickly yeah, you have really managed to kind of align yourself with many partners and supporters from law firms to organizations such as the Electronic Frontier Alliance or even get funding, I guess, from the Open Society Foundation. Could you tell us more about the most important players that you collaborate with and how you organize your work here and how you managed to put together such an impressive coalition and gain support for your work in such a relatively short time? 
Well, for us, the most important partners are the tiny grassroots groups and the individual organizers who, you know, your listeners may never have heard of before, but without that sort of community-driven response and without that sort of broader mobilization and without the legitimization that comes from those sorts of community partnerships, none of our work would be possible and, you know, definitely feel grateful that we've been able to, you know, harness the pro bono support of, of large law firms using their capacity to, you know, bring more lawsuits, bring, you know, draft more research reports, really expand our impact beyond what our, you know, relatively small staff could do on its own. But, you know, beyond that, really, our, our entire mission focuses on coalition building, because the idea when I founded STOP was that, you know, there were dozens, maybe hundreds of groups that were interested in surveillance that saw it as a threat, but either didn't have the capacity to address it or weren't making it a priority. And so that we could come into this space, not as a voice on our own, but really as a convener to bring together a chorus of, you know, pushback against the use of things like facial recognition and social media monitoring and you new know, novel forms of artificial intelligence. How would you describe this uh, this kind of atmosphere in in the US and New York maybe is there kind of uh, more and more concern about these technologies in the recent years are there more organizations proliferating is this becoming a kind of hot topic i see it really varies uh, in different uh, locations like norway is a very high trust country it's very hard to push a form of critique here against these technologies they kind of are almost invisible and they're being used but not really talked very much about and much of the critique comes precisely from from the US and uh, and maybe you know places like India even where where we see uh, people are mobilizing in a similar way could you say something about the kind of environment in which you operate Yeah, I would say the environment is dystopian chic. Uh, you know, we view this as a nihilistic threat to democracy as we know it. We view it as, you know, a terrible Black Mirror episode becoming real life. But, you know, increasingly it's a point of, you know, uh, convergence and mobilization. And, and, you know, my theory of change is that it had to get this bad for us to wake up to the threat it posed. Because, again, you know, I've been, you know, telling people that this stuff was scary and, you know, alarming for, for not just years, but for decades. And so it, it's really something where because of the severity of the abuse we have in the U.S., now people can't ignore it. And, and I don't think it's, it's a surprise that, you know, in that the, the public reaction in many ways responds to the power dynamics of those using the technology. And here in the U.S., you know, we're a highly fractured political landscape. And so, you know, for example, more conservative uh, members of the public who would be trusting of the NYPD's usage of this technology because of their political alignment would be really terrified to hear that the IRS is using this, our, uh, our tax enforcement agency. They would be disturbed to hear that, you know, Uh, the regulators of firearms are using us. So it's really the reaction to surveillance is always a reflection of how we view those who are wielding the power. And, and you know, 
we we definitely view this not purely as a technical problem, but as a techno legal problem. And where you do have sufficient safeguards in the legal system against abuse, you know, it's not uh, something that we would necessarily oppose the same way. But it's because of the deficiencies of the American legal system and because of the discrimination, you know, perpetuated by our police that we think this technology in the American context has to be completely outlawed. Mm. So let us turn to the dystopian stuff, the case of NYPD. And, you know, it has this arsenal of largely unregulated surveillance technology and cutting edge kind of military grade spy tools. Uh, which have for years kind of received little public notice debate or oversight. I think by now people are more familiar with the, with the existence of this, at least. And you have tried to change precisely the letter by introducing uh, the Public Oversight of Surveillance Technology Act or POST Act, which has been passed by the City Council. I would like you to tell us more about the issues that you aim to address with this act, the work towards pushing it through and the consequences. But I think before we turn to the act itself, Maybe you could give us some background to NYPD's now notorious uh, use of these technologies. I mean, even the Norwegian police admires its capabilities and they go on visits to the department to get inspired and so forth. So this is also of interest for us here. <laughs> here it is. Why has the uh, NYPD embraced these technologies in the first place? Why have they pro- Why have they been proven to be so problematic? And what are the actual key technologies currently in use? Yeah, I think this is why the fight against surveillance technology in New York City is so important, because the NYPD holds outsized power around the world in in setting the the framework for what is good policing. It is looked to by agencies, you know, throughout the United States and and to a lesser extent in Europe and, and other parts of the of the world that as being the law enforcement agency to model yourself on. And so in the US where we have, you know, thousands of different local and state police agencies, thousands of them, and almost no centralized regulation of how those agencies operate by regulating the NYPD, by changing how the NYPD behaves and by outlawing abuses that the agency has carried out, we can really start to shift how police use this technology um, far more systemically. And in the NYPD's case, it's really chilling. They've used pseudoscience in the form of different uh, surveillance technologies, not just for years, but in some cases for decades without any oversight. They use facial recognition in a way that should appall anyone with any sort of scientific training, because what they do is they take you know, something like a facial recognition algorithm. And then rather than running photos from crime scenes as they're taken, they will take that photo, they'll Photoshop it. If the eyes are uh, closed, they'll Photoshop them open. If the mouth is open, they'll Photoshop them closed. If part of the face is obscured or the angle is off, they'll literally copy parts of other people's faces from Google image searches online and then use this art project, this collage, as the basis for running an algorithmic search. And there is absolutely no scientific basis to think any of this is remotely accurate let alone to know the bias rate, let alone to know all the other drivers of harm. And they've done this in a way that circumvents any oversight by our judiciary 
because they claim this is never the basis for an arrest. They'll claim this is just, quote unquote, a lead. But what happens is they will show these images to a an eyewitness. The eyewitness will, under this highly uh, distorted questioning, say, oh, I think that's the person after being shown literally one image. And then they will arrest an individual without even mentioning that facial recognition was used. And this type of pseudoscience is replicated through social media analytics, where police departments use uh, software that claims to predict who will commit a crime in the future, but really just replicates the racist profiling of the past. And we use software that can try to monitor people's location throughout the city. We use novel forms of biometrics. We use drones. We even had a four-legged Digidog, a robotic dog that was, you know, purchased for more than $75,000 and then just walked through public housing and other uh, buildings, never actually used, but faced such public backlash that they had to quickly abandon it. I mean, it's not just the NYPD, the, the fire department just bought one of these Digidogs as well. Despite the fact that they actually don't do well in heat. So our fire department has a robotic dog with a maximum operating temperature of, you know, 116 degrees Fahrenheit, I believe. So I, I think that would be like maybe 45 degrees Celsius. And, you know, if it gets too close to a fire because it has a lithium ion battery, it will explode. And this is just proof that it's not our needs. It's not New Yorkers' interest. It's not public safety that's driving these purchases. It's the surveillance vendors, you know, smoke and mirrors. It's the sales pitch. And there's really no one meaningfully pushing back. And I think the fact that there is a massive revolving door between law enforcement and the surveillance companies that profit from these technologies isn't helping at all either. Yeah, and indeed, and we see that a lot of these private intelligence companies, they're also staffed by former police and former intelligence uh, agents themselves. <laughs> so there's good conditions for revolving door. But uh, so what in this situation were your main goals in formulating the this act? And uh, how did you about go about creating the alliance and the momentum for this? And and I should be clear, I didn't create the post act, you know, that was, um, it was originally drafted um, by Rashida Richardson, an amazing uh, advocate in this space, um, who was at the New York Civil Liberties Union at the time. It was launched by her in partnership with the Brennan Center for Justice. But we, you know, at Stop came uh, together, it, you know, to advance that bill and to, to finally push it to be passed. And you know, in doing so, you know, we wanted to really reverse this dynamic where technologies could be purchased in secret and used in secret. And only once those abuses came to light in court or through a leak or through some other happenstance would the public know. And, and we wanted to really reassert democratic control over this technology by saying that you need to notify the public in advance prior to the deployment of this technology and that you must actually give us a chance to comment. And that the idea being that, you know, this is a very weak protection. It's a very weak first step, but that with 
if you don't know what technologies are being used, if you can't see it, you can't outlaw it, you can't fight it, you can't push back against it. And so really viewing this sort of transparency measure as the indispensable prerequisite to democratic engagement. You know, unfortunately, the NYPD, you know, has systematically fought compliance on this. We believe that they've broken the law repeatedly in the way that they have uh, submitted uh, post-act filings. And, and, you know, that's something that we may need to sue them over in the future. But even in this limited compliance um, capacity, we've gotten a lot of revelations. You know, we were able to publish, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars in secret NYPD contracts that had been, you know, uh, you know, entered into by the NYPD over, you know, more than a, a decade and hidden from the public. And the only reason those were published was because of the post act. We were able to, you know, um, share that uh, we were able to identify internet attribution management software, which is used by the NYPD to run bot networks, fake accounts on social media to trick people into clicking away their constitutional rights by adding NYPD officers as friends on Facebook or allowing them to follow private feeds on other platforms. And really, um, that's this is why we need things like the Post Act to understand what are the new and terrifying ways that you know police departments are are monitoring us. Indeed, and once we have that knowledge, what do we do then? <laughs> we outlaw it. We sue them, we ban it. We, you know, we, I I don't believe in a complex regulatory structure. Mm. I believe that when we create nuanced, you know, frameworks for the use of technology, that they, it simply is a failure, that this is because you don't have anyone with the political will to enforce it, that when those rules are enforced, when those limitations are observed, they're observed asymmetrically to, you know, privilege the already privileged amongst us. And because I don't believe this is a utilitarian balancing test, I think this is that these technologies are so profoundly dangerous and offensive and repugnant to everything a democracy should stand for, that they just need to simply be outlawed. Yeah, no, I completely agree. And I keep always saying the same when it comes to this European Union proposals, you know, where where it's all trustworthy AI and algorithmic auditing and so forth and an enormous network, uh, uh, regulatory architecture that is absolutely incredible on, uh, you know, you're doing your risk assessments. And if your risk assessment says, well, maybe I'm likely to, to kind of impact uh, civil rights or human rights. Well, what is the risk of that? And uh, yes, you can still go ahead because you have done your risk assessment, basically says that right and uh, and it becomes uh, just another source of industry right this algorithmic auditing becomes another industry and you have all these regulatory technologies that are proliferating as a consequence of this so mm -hmm. so it just becomes it just becomes uh, this regulation itself feeds feeds the industry it doesn't stop it right so i oh, think this is, yeah. this is exactly why i think that it's super important to kind of insist on just a flat ban on some of these things and uh, because otherwise it's just uh, you create new ways of evading the the regulations yeah and we we had pushed back strongly against a bill that was enacted last year in new york city that imposed one of the weakest algorithmic uh, auditing standards in the country particular you know 
precisely because of this. It's a normalization of a technology that is unproven, dangerous, and where using this other form of you know private sector industry as a supposed safeguard but i i always point out to people who put their trust in algorithmic auditing as the way to safeguard us against these harms when you get a financial audit your auditor isn't writing the tax code for you they aren't writing the accounting standards they are implementing you know, agreed upon frameworks for how you ensure that financial statements are regular, that they're trustworthy, that they aren't in uh, containing fraud. There is no agreed upon standards for any of the algorithmic auditing. And so when you talk about relying on that as a legal matter, you're essentially giving these companies the latitude to write their own rules about what should be legal and what should not be, what it means to audit and what it means to uh, to actually ensure compliance. And, and that's why I think that with, you know, as algorithmic auditing stands today, it, it is really just a, a red herring and a, a dangerous way to facilitate the broader use of this, you know, dangerous technology. Indeed. So, um, you're also uh, working towards several other acts and bands. Um, maybe you could tell us uh, something about those that you deem most important and why, and what, what are the kind of issues that you work on right now? Yeah, I basically look at all the ways that technology can go terribly, terribly wrong, mainly focusing on state surveillance, but sometimes beyond that, like with the call for a complete ban on the use of artificial intelligence in hiring in New York State. Um, we work uh, to ban things like facial recognition uh, because of its documented bias, because of its documented error rate, because it's uh, so opaque, and because when facial recognition is optimized to actually account for all the ways that it goes wrong today, it, it will be too powerful to be trusted to any you know, police force, because at that point you can, with a single photo, identify everyone, you know, who's going to a house of worship or to a protest or to a reproductive healthcare facility. You have the you know, perfect tool of authoritarianism. Uh, we are working to ban police drones because we think they dramatically reduce the cost of persistent aerial surveillance in a way that incentivizes, you know, excessive and invasive and discriminatory surveillance. We've seen just a push to expand the use of drones uh, by, um, you know, uh, Mayor Adams and others. And, and so we've strongly opposed that. But our biggest focus is on this concept of legal firewalls, how to create a barrier between the government and the data held on us or for us by the companies we use every day. Because it's creepy when an ad can follow you around the internet, but it's you know truly terrifying when that same you know data set can be used to track every place you've gone in real life and can be used by the police to you know arrest you or, or can be used by immigration officials to deport you. 
So with the with these sorts of uh, legal firewalls, what we do is we create barriers to uh, police access to this data. So one example is a ban on so-called geofence warrants. So uh, geofence warrants are a uh, tool whereby police can ask for the uh, identities of everyone within a designated area at a designated time. And that area could be a single room or it could be an entire city. It could be tens of thousands of people's location histories through a single court order. And to me, it's patently unconstitutional. They, it goes far beyond what police should be able to command companies to do. But police are doing it tens of thousands of times a, a year in the U.S. And so we want to outlaw that practice completely in New York. We want to outlaw um, a so-called keyword search warrant where police are um, uh, searching for everyone who's had a Google query for a specific search term or a specific address, an increasingly prevalent search tool in the U.S. as well. And we also want to ban police purchases of this data because right now, there are you know, countless cases where police don't have legal authority to, to grab this data, to compel companies to hand it over, but they still can buy it from data brokers. And we do not believe that you know, our constitutional rights should be for sale in that way. Indeed. <laughs> and uh, then we had also this COVID uh, crisis that came into the picture in 2020. And... Uh, I think it had great implications all over the world for privacy and civil rights. And we have witnessed uh, in response to the crisis, a rapid expansion of pre-existing surveillance infrastructures with remote mm -hmm. work, you have workplace surveillance, all these contact tracing apps, immunity passports, thermal scanners and other public health technologies. And the response to this crisis was in many ways just this classical techno-solutionist, uh, technocratic one, more apps, more surveillance, more control architectures, more surveillance capitalism, and more discrimination in the process, of course. And in that situation, uh, you, you had to kind of channel your resources in your organization, I assume, also to target these issues. Did you manage to achieve anything on that front as well? And what did you learn in the process? Yeah, and I, I want to highlight a recent op-ed I had in the Washington Post with my collaborator, Evan Selinger, talking exactly about this issue, how our relationship with technology changed during the pandemic and both how it increased our reliance on this technology and also how it, you know, that increased familiarity bred contempt as we saw the shortcomings of the, of the platforms we now had to use. So for us, this was a really important um, advocacy campaign, both because of the need to respond rapidly to, to really alarming proposals as far as expanded electronic surveillance goes, while also being clear in our messaging to support the public health measures that actually work. So one thing that you know kept me up at night, continues to keep me up at night, is that raising concerns about the pseudoscience in vaccine apps, the apps that were used to detect our vaccination status or exposure notification apps that detect our proximity to other people, that that could be weaponized by the people who are trying to under mind faith in the vaccines themselves, the life-saving vaccines that have, you know, helped 
protect so many of us and helped, you know, bring this pandemic to a close much more quickly than otherwise would have been possible. And so that sort of strategic messaging exercise became really difficult as an advocate, you know, being very, how to approach those issues and, and keep them quite separate. But what we saw most of all, you know, was whether it was vaccine tracking apps, whether it was um, uh, um, exposure notification apps, whether it was thermal imaging scans, whether it was uh, other techno solutionism, the capacity for magical thinking by government officials faced with seemingly impossible choices between keeping communities open and seeing people just unnecessarily die from the pandemic or, you know, keeping communities closed and seeing, you know, businesses grind to a halt and seeing economic harm. That is a hard decision. That is a painful decision. But all, all too often, they would put their head in the sand and pretend that it was a, you know, decision they didn't have to make because the technology would save us, that we could have an open community where people wouldn't be transmitting the virus because somehow these different scans and apps would prevent that. It, it, it was never true. It was a lie. It was a profitable lie sold to us by tech companies who have never fully admitted the extent to which their platforms failed. I mean, look at the multi-million dollar investment in exposure notification app that were heralded as the way to detect COVID in real time, to track the spread of the pandemic and be notified before you even could get test results. We spent you know, millions of dollars on that in New York. We've seen other states spend millions only to see a handful of potential exposure events picked up because quite frankly, the technology is terrible at creating this persistent log of everyone we've gone near. And yet at the same time, that type of technology was incredibly dangerous from a data protection standpoint, from a you know civil rights perspective, because it was oftentimes being deployed without any protection against you know use by police or you know other uh, government agencies. Which is why we worked in a large coalition to help pass the first bill in the United States to say that um, contact tracing data could not be used by police as a, um, you know, uh, policing tool. And so that's sort of a, another example of this sort of legal firewall in action. Um, and, and so, yeah, I, I think that, you know, we've, we've definitely advocated quite a bit against these various apps. And, you know, for example, I've um, been very successful in ensuring that New York City and New York State continue to accept you know, paper proof of vaccination status as being valid. But it, it's a hard balance to strike. Hmm. Indeed. And how would you assess also these kind of larger consequences of these developments? I mean, we have seen in a similar way a massive expansion of the surveillance architecture after 9-11, right? And similarly with this uh, health crisis, it's kind of opened also the Pandora's box of health data which have been so far, uh, I think, harder to access for a lot of companies uh, prior to this, right? Uh, and now they are kind of, it's kind of more legit to exploit this form of data as well. I feel uh, that it has really kind of had this uh, function creep and all of that. Um, so what are your kind of predictions for developments at the intersection of health, security and surveillance? Because I feel that those are kind of 
merging into each other. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, to be honest, and here's where I'm a bit of a heterodox, I'm oh. not all that concerned about health data protection because it is it, the type of data that is often commercially exploited. It's oftentimes a target to all the drug manufacturers and all the people who want to profit off of it. But as someone who's focused on the abuse of state power, it is far less alarming than location data, than the data that these different um, you know, contact tracing apps were, were collecting. And, and so I never really prioritized health data the same way, but I do think it was uh, informative to the broader public the number of times that you know you would see scandals about people using privatized health infrastructure in the pandemic only to learn that none of that data was protected and really i i think that was a bit galvanizing for you know for the groups that do focus on on that sort of private sector use of health data it, it's been something that they've been able to leverage as a wake-up call to to their base hmm. Interesting. So you have, uh, as you mentioned earlier, you work actively against facial recognition. And on March 13, the Reuters reported that Clearview AI software is being used uh, by Ukraine's defense ministry to help identify enemies and Russian operatives, identify the dead, the wet people at checkpoints even, and fight disinformation. I mean, Clearview AI is, I think, rather famous. <laughs> and uh, it claims to have more than 2 billion images from the Russian social Media service contacte. Uh, you argued uh, in the article that um, mismatch could lead to civilian deaths and result in additional harms and total loss of control of how such technology is applied. Clearview AI has been one of the most controversial companies fighting lawsuits in US, accused of breaches of privacy and much more. And yet it markets itself as, uh, and I quote, an intelligence platform trusted by law enforcement, as many of the similar platforms do. And UK and Australia have deemed its practices uh, illegal. And uh, you have also earlier called on the New York City council and state legislature to institute a wholesale ban on this use of facial recognition. So I would like you to tell us more about uh, your work on this and your views on Clearview AI and uh, and especially on facial recognition in the context of war, because I think this is something that is really important right now to discuss. And uh, so so maybe tell us first about about your views on, on this on this kind of war scenario, and then we will move to, to discuss these uh, these two these two legal actions? Yeah, I mean, you know, I, I've described a lot of the ways that facial recognition can go wrong in peacetime, but in a time of war, the dangers are so much more pronounced because when police use facial recognition, it's putting us at risk of wrongful arrest. But when people are using facial recognition on the battlefield at checkpoints, intense standoffs with someone who they can't tell if they're a refugee or someone trying to sneak in as, as an foreign operative, it's not going to get people arrested. It's going to get people shot. I am terrified that when you know, Clearview AI makes mistakes in Ukraine, the consequences will be nothing short of life and death. And, and, and you know, this gets to really one of the the biggest issues with facial recognition more comprehensively. People treat it as if it's perfect. People treat it as if the results it provides are never wrong. 
And so just imagine, you know, someone, you know, a refugee fleeing a city under constant shelling, trying to get to safety, trying to get to a safe haven and getting to a checkpoint where Ukrainian forces use Clearview AI to look at their face wrongly get a match for a an account from Russian social media. I I don't want to imagine how the rest of that story goes. And, and I, I think it is profoundly irresponsible and potentially unlawful to deploy a technology like this into the middle of a conflict zone. And this is a company that has, you know, you know, routinely, you know, violated, as I see it, violated the law in the way it deploys its product, taking billions of photos from across social media and across the web without consent to turn our own data, our own images into part of their tracking apparatus. And, and, and this is just offensive. And this is just deplorable. And also, this was not something the Ukrainian government was asking for. As far as I know, this is something that was done as a publicity stunt by Clearview AI to put themselves in the news. This was, you know, I've I've been like so many others deeply moved to hear President Zelensky address the world, calling for help, calling for planes and tanks, calling for weapon systems, calling for a no-fly zone. I never heard facial recognition on that list of asks. And, and, and so to me, this is just, you know, truly a shocking disregard for for the lives of, of the Ukrainian people by the Clearview AI. Indeed. So let us now move to, to what you have achieved on that front uh, in your hometown. <laughs> and, uh, and you had had two lawsuits, one against NYPD and one against uh, MTA, the Metropolitan Transportation Authority. I found this particularly interesting that uh, that this transport uh, authorities also insert themselves into this uh, space all over the place. <laughs> Maybe you can tell us more about those two. Yeah, so we have a number of lawsuits that are ongoing over facial recognition. So um, last week we had a court hearing on behalf of Amnesty International, who we represent in their litigation against the NYPD, demanding records related to facial recognition and the surveillance of Black Lives Matter uh, activists in the summer of 2020. I, I, I am also suing the NYPD, demanding all of the uh, records that the agency has on the accuracy and bias of its own facial recognition system. And shockingly, in that litigation where, you know, we're still waiting for our day in court, the NYPD officials have said under oath that they don't track the accuracy or bias of their technology, that they have truly no records whatsoever on whether or not this system works, whether it is error prone, and whether it's discriminating against New Yorkers. And to me, that again shows that this is not about good policing. This is about defending the technology that they are sold on by the surveillance vendors. 
Um, and in terms of, you know, the uh, broader campaign, you know, we are working with, you know, dozens of groups as part of the Ban the Scan Coalition to push forward in calling for a you know, uh, a complete ban on facial recognition use by the government in New York City and New York State. We're advocating for legislation, uh, both before the state council and the state legislature. And I'm hoping those bans this year will go from being campaigns to being law. Indeed, we we support you and hope so too. <laughs> you have also had the other kind of uh, illegal actions, this class actions, uh, a class action against Thompson Reuters uh, and its product Clear. I find this particle interesting because I'm right now working on this compliance industry where lots of these technologies proliferate in their kind of rectex place. And this uh, Thomson Reuters, and I think many may not be aware, supplies not only news and online legal research services, but also offers a range of products within private intelligence. Uh, and this clear investigation software, which this lawsuit targets, uh, so from that to services within compliance and business intelligence. Until recently, Thomson Reuters was hosting the notorious World Check database, which compiles similar kind of dossiers, these personal files uh, for a know your customer due diligence, risk intelligence, enhanced due diligence, anti-money laundering, countering terrorist financing compliance, and so forth. Uh, which has been this this business has been sold to this Refinitiv, but uh, it's the, there are still some compliance services that remain with Thomson Reuters. And I wonder if this clear kind of uh, is part of this uh, this compliance uh, space as well. These and similar products uh, by this private intelligence industry have witnessed rapid growth in the past years and are now further stimulated by the war in Ukraine to return to that uh, topic. And we see these extraordinary sanctions regimes across jurisdictions. and, uh, and with that, we see this kind of massive boom of these sanction screening tools, which again rely on this kind of open source intelligence uh, and, and, and similar. So we see this kind of uh, merging, I think, of, of lots of these kind of vendors that were kind of maybe slightly more disconnected previously, but, uh, but they seem to grow. And this clear database that you target in this class action is, I think, a perfect example of how these services work uh, in practice by delivering these kind of cradle-to-grave uh, dossiers on individuals and assign these individuals risk scores and so forth. Uh, maybe you can tell us more about this class actions and what you found in it. I found reading it really, really interesting. Yeah, so, you know, Thomson Reuters, through their clear product, offers dossiers on millions of Americans, probably the vast majority of Americans, providing detailed information on where we live, who we're related to, who we spend time with, criminal history, um, you know, our employment history. And it's really this, in you know, sprawling dossier of our life you know, our, our, our identity reduced to, you know, a, a um, you know, database that they can sell and profit from. And so what, um, you know, after seeing that this um, platform was used by, you know, law enforcement, after seeing it was used by immigration and customs enforcement to deport Americans, you know, I, I really became interested in how I could 
you know, use existing laws to try to push back against us. So with our uh, amazing co-counsel at Gupta Wessler and the Gibbs Law Firm and um, Justice Catalyst, we filed this class action in California, you know, alleging that it violates something called, you know, our rights of publicity, our personality rights. So this is usually the thing that people when, you know, if they were to use your face on a box of Wheaties without consent, even if they own the copyright to the image, they can't do that because of the implied endorsement. And it's that same theory that, but it's not just celebrities who get this sort of right. When our entire life is being reduced to someone else's product and being sold in this way, it's something that you know, we allege is illegal, no matter, you know, how prominent or low profile you may be. And so, you know, that's something where, you know, we, we filed this, uh, you know, I believe it was uh, a close to a year and a half ago. And, you know, in the time since then, you know, we got a incredibly favorable ruling from uh, the district judge, the federal uh, judge in California, you know, ruling against Thomson Reuters defenses, saying that this isn't journalism, this isn't protected by the First Amendment, this isn't something where you can claim your news gathering. This is a very different type of commercial practice. And, and, you know, right now we're in active discovery, and I'm hoping that we can set a new sort of path forward, not just to target Thomson Reuters, but to target so many of the uh, vendors who enable the broader uh, surveillance ecosystem. Indeed, and there are so many and they're proliferating. And I think that they're kind of the surveillance for hire is, is really an industry to target ahead and that's going to just grow. And what I find fascinating that is it is always kind of legitimized in, in, in this, you know, in the security interest, right? And and always this uh, this uh, things that you cannot really argue against uh, in you know like uh, we don't want crime we don't want financial crime we have uh, anti money laundering and similar regulations right we have to do our due diligence we need to have uh, risk scores on our clients we are we are to know our customer and uh, we have to put in anti corruption measures and that's why we need these uh, services right this is what the industry would uh, would say and so it becomes very you kind of become trapped between this uh, in this logic of you know how do you argue against something that that you know claims to serve a good purpose right so i think you you took a really nice um, nice approach to that in that lawsuit because it kind of <laughs> displaced those those arguments right <laughs> and um, yeah and then i find also very interesting in the in that um, in that uh, action that uh, you know you had this kind of option to opt out from at the very bottom of the page, but when you wanted mm-hmm. to opt out, uh, it asked you for your driving license and your <laughs> and your ID and, uh, and 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 another image of yourself, right? So, so it's just absolutely absurd. That <laughs> the only way to opt out, and maybe for only twelve months, is to <laughs> is to is to provide more private data and your ID. I mean, it's just crazy. In yeah, the- it's Kafka-esque that the only way to protect your private data is to share even more private data in the hope that they won't retain and sell that data as well. Yeah, and I mean, there is no, I mean, uh, there is no uh, no way to keep track of such things. So I think there needs to be some more 
principled action. But you spoke also about this this bias and the focus on on bias. And and I often hear these these kind of data scientists that say like, well, it's just a matter of time until we perfect this, right? Until until we get a hundred percent, and then then you will lose that uh, bias uh, discrimination argument, right? Because then our technology will be perfect, and and uh, you can say it will never be perfect. But but I mean, there are f- there must be kind of more fundamental and principled argument to be made against this than than kind of taking this uh, this bias uh, line of argument right because this this is what one always gets back <laughs> well and that's a fundamental misunderstanding of the scope of the bias concerns because mm. you know on the bookshelves behind me the the book right in the center is by Ruha Benjamin the amazing professor from Princeton who's written extensively about how even a technically neutral system when deployed in a biased social context will give you biased results so you can have in the case of the NYPD a non-biased you know facial recognition algorithm they don't have that i'm talking hypothetically <laughs> but even if their algorithm were non-biased the way that data was gathered the way that those results were interpreted the ways that people were treated based off of those purported face facial recognition results would be influenced and infected by bias at each step of the way and so the people who claim that there is a technical fix to the algorithmic bias are really at their core trying to claim that you can de-bias systemic racism in a broader social context. And when you think about it that way, we know that it's patently false. Indeed. I just led you there for you to say that. <laughs> And also we see as uh, the proliferation of these technologies in the workplaces. I don't know if you are looking at uh, workplace surveillance in, in some measure as well. It would be really interesting to know uh, on that uh, level, because what I really kind of uh, uh, am afraid of is that these kind of surveillance technologies, they become management tools and they are increasingly becoming management tools. We, we have these... Uh, See the proliferation also through compliance of these uh, internal threat management systems, which basically mm-hmm. come from intelligence industries, right? Uh, where you kind of give risk profiles to your employees and you track everything they do within this kind of platform where they where they work. And where it's part of these technologies, there's there's always this kind of psychological element to that. And you talked about this kind of pseudoscience. So you have all these kind of science sciences to joining up together in this in this. Uh, in this and uh, trying to evaluate emotions, uh, well, you know, give do give kind of risk uh, assessments to to emotional states, track kind of how you what you write, and assess this kind of linguistic uh, linguistic uh, psychological profiling. All of that we see also in the in the management space in workplace mm-hmm. surveillance, right? And uh, and 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 kind of it's not the same thing, but uh, but you 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 did this kind of petition against NYPD regarding this uh, sentiment sentiment meter, where they tried to mm-hmm. kind of uh, uh, measure public attitudes towards NYPD. I find this interesting because lots of these uh, arguments always turn uh, are kind of displaced by by saying how people feel if we just have to change the way people feel about technologies right so i mm-hmm. I, I wondered if it kind of falls uh, into that argument how do you feel about the police how do you feel about technologies you know kind of we have to build trust uh, towards mm-hmm. technology but uh, but not really 
change the technology, right? The technology doesn't have to deserve <laughs> the trust, <laughs> but uh, but rather we have to work with attitudes, right? So I find it's really interesting this this focus on attitudes. So maybe you could say more about about that technology and then and how they developed that. Yeah, so this is a lawsuit we brought to learn more about the NYPD's multi-million dollar contract with a vendor called Elucid. And what Elucid claimed to do was map out, you know, precinct by precinct, what New Yorkers thought about the NYPD. And this was being sold as an accountability tool. But the thing that was so alarming is that this could be just a really powerful way to punish or reward neighborhoods with different levels of police resources and response based off of the public sentiment. So that those neighborhoods with the lowest NYPD, uh, lowest regard for the NYPD might see even worse police outcomes as a result. And, and to me, it was really just Orwellian at, that you had the police tracking what the public thought of them, but then the police refused to give any of the data on how that system operated to the public. And to me, that is the exact you know, opposite of what we need in, in, in a democratic society. But you know, I've also done a fair amount of work in opposing workplace surveillance. You know, and I, I have to be clear, th this isn't just something that I think is you know, problematic from a values perspective, you know, like you were saying, a lot of it's pseudoscience. It is terrible management. I think of, the, um, I'm not sure to what extent The Simpsons is a popular show in Norway, but there's this old episode where Homer worked from home and set up a little uh, mechanical bird to just press a button on his <laughs> keyboard periodically because that's all it took to make the to make it look like he was working, and that is what we've ended up with with through a lot of these productivity tools, which are taking really crude measurements of how many keystrokes you're typing and how many emails you're sending and the frequency of your work and trying to turn that into some sort of measurement of your holistic value to a company. It's not. As a boss, as a manager, I, 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 can, I, I can't imagine how I would ever want or, or be able to use these tools in a meaningful way. And yet they're becoming more and more baked into all of the platforms we use. And so that's why we support legislation here in New York that required um, employers to notify uh, employees about certain forms of workplace surveillance, but we want to go further and outlaw a lot of these forms of workplace surveillance. Because during the pandemic, this is another way it's accelerated the, the problematic uses of tech. We've seen people working remotely at home being forced to have their home webcam surveil them in their own bedroom, surveil their children. This is, to me, this would have been just truly unthinkable a few years ago, but now it's the routine reality for lots of workers. And so, you know, we definitely are trying to outlaw any of that sort of remote monitoring within the home, trying to outlaw use of biometric surveillance uh, for workers as well, and, and trying to, you know, expand our capacity to really advocate against this technology that not only undermines you know, employee rights not only undermines their privacy and their dignity, but really is just a terrible, <laughs> terrible management idea. 
right, indeed is. <laughs> and I mean, it leads to a lot of new threats, right? Uh, and 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 new market for this industry because lots of these things will be criminogenic in their own in their own way, right? You will try to kind of uh, evade all those technologies. So, um, what is the kind of most important thing for you at the moment? And uh, how do you plan to kind of scale up your actions to? to uh, globally, I mean, uh, you work a lot on this, on these local things and you want to make it into a model for, for the US, but uh, I think it's important to kind of turn it into a kind of global action because I did, otherwise I don't think we can take on global corporations. <laughs> You're, yeah. yeah, completely. And I, I think for me, as someone who comes out of activism, who comes out of local action, I know that there is a very problematic history of well-intentioned, well-educated white men from America parachuting into other parts of the world saying they are going to make things better <laughs> and only making things much, much worse. So we're never going to be setting up satellite offices in other countries. We're never going to be even setting up other offices in other parts of the United States. What we're going to do is continue to expand the resources we can provide to partner NGOs that are working in their local communities in other countries. We already work with partner groups in half a dozen different countries. We already work with you know, Amnesty International as part of a five-city global pushback against facial recognition. We already see the power of building community and solidarity because even though we're all fighting in our individual communities, it's against the same technologies being deployed in parallel you know, by the same companies with the same sales pitch around the world. But you know, this is the sort of when when you're talking about local opposition, you know, the the rhetoric the rhetoric that resonates in New York will fall flat in, in so many other places. The the legal strategies that work in the US constitutional system will be inapplicable in civil law regimes and other uh, um, uh, jurisdictions. So it really has to be about providing that assistance, but taking the lead from local organizers. Indeed. Uh, without kind of local support, you can't achieve anything. And I think we have too much top-down governance already. So <laughs> we don't need more of that. <laughs> Completely agree. But I think it's important to, to learn from each other and, and see how other people are doing it and network and so forth that we have to do. So uh, is there anything you would like to say that we did not touch upon and you would like to share or share a tip well, or where should people go if they want to learn more about you or... Yeah, well, uh, you know, they can uh, check out our work at stopspying.org. Uh, so uh, clearly a very subtle domain, uh, <laughs> not uh, clear, consistent with our, our, our messaging overall. You know, they can follow us on social media at Stop Spying NY, as in New York, or uh, I'm on uh, all the, you know, privacy destroying platforms under <laughs> uh, the username Foxconn, F-O-X. C-A-H-N. Uh, and, you know, the th you know, we're constantly looking to expand our partnerships, expand our networks of support. If people want assistance, want to do trainings, want to collaborate on projects, that's always a welcome invitation. And for those who aren't in the position to partner on the work directly, but want to support the campaign, you know, we are a publicly funded nonprofit. Our work is only possible because of the people who 
donate to support our cause. And, you know, sadly, you know, this threat of surveillance is only going to grow in the coming months and years. And so we need to grow our capacity to fight back as well. So for those who are able to, you know, contribute financially, that is a huge, you know, source of our um, strength. Thank you so much. So this was Albert Foxconn from the Surveillance Technology Oversight Project. Many thanks again for joining me and for this insightful conversation and keep up the important work. (laughs) Thank you again for having me.